Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Legendary Tales podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Adam Bloor, and I am joined by the impeccably spoken, always well-researched... Isidore Martin Dye, I guess. We're doing intros now. I was about to say, that's the first time you've ever done that. <laughs> we are doing intros, and that's, how, that's how we're going to do it. <laughs> and if mine's not as flattering next week as this one was, I might just quit. Okay, well, you've been warned, I've been warned, we'll get it sorted. Okay, so we're going to start it off with something that happened this week that was really exciting. Firstly, our listener numbers are going up every week, which is really, really cool. Thank you so much, And guys. we're so grateful. Yes, uh, you guys are awesome, always tuning in. And just, I, you must be telling somebody because, like Dora said, the numbers just keep growing. And yeah. We couldn't be more excited. And we we do follow them because we are excited. Neurotically follow uh-huh. the numbers. The idea that someone driving in their car listens to me talk about whatever legendary tales is just it's so cool and so flattering and totally makes me mind boggling, honestly. So. More importantly, we want to call out one person in particular. I believe his name on Instagram was Bowen, and he messaged us and said he'd been listening for a while and thought we were doing a good job. Bowen, if you're listening to this podcast, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And anybody else who wants to send us nice stuff, life is very stressful yeah. right now. Shoot I a, think Shoot us a DM. I think it's pretty safe to say that we're all... Feeling it. Feeling. <laughs> not vibing with 2020. <laughs> 2020 has not been great, and it... Little things like that. Not only, by the way, just receiving messages saying how much people love us, which is just so cool. Oh, amazing. But also being able to tell you guys how much we appreciate it. I think just sending love back and forth each way is so important. Yeah. Thanks again, Bowen, for the for the kind words. But if you if anyone else wants to read out, reach out. Instagram, email. We're here. Yeah. Okay, for those following along at home, <laughs> this is actually the second time we've recorded this podcast today. Yep. And that is because the first time we recorded it, we sounded terrible. Really bad. I think I think I left my phone on, maybe, and was getting messages. We're not really sure what was happening, but... In order to get you guys the high-fidelity podcast that you expect... We are doing this again. Doing it again. And the good news is, we'll do it better this time, because I will know how to pronounce some of these words. <laughs> But people tune in for the character drama, Dora. Oh, the character drama of my <laughs> dyslexic brain misfiring. Between the yes, yes, it's your character arc. Is someday you won't be dyslexic anymore? Right? I hope not. For those that are listening that are dyslexic, maybe a little pick me up. Dyslexics generally have a much higher IQ than those that aren't dyslexic. Unfortunately, we also just sound like we're talking word <laughs> salad sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's easier to do a podcast as a dyslexic than it would be to write a blog. Sure. I don't know if I agree with that or not. I can't form a functional sentence no. in on paper. No. As my blog writing editor, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at least on the talking. You're good at the talking. I can do the talking. You are, you are a good seller. So Adam is back from France. Yes, I am. I've been back for about 48 hours. I'm really happy to be back in Devon where it's not 35 degrees all the time. Yeah. That's, it, that's Celsius. For anyone yep. in America. Oh, and most people are. Yeah. It's all right. You can be American on this. Well, no, that's what I mean. It's like America is the only country that doesn't use the metric system. Oh, that's true. That's what that's what I meant. Is that in okay. America, that would be like 100 degrees. Yeah. It's hot. It was very hot. And so he's back. So we're recording this live in person. Not over it, the phone. No, it will be going out a day late because of said recording Technical errors, issues, yeah. which have been plaguing us, I will say, this last week or two. But... We're here to discuss really fun topics this week because we decided to leave it quite broad. Yeah. And do something that is 
about a country that we visited that we yeah, enjoyed. Yeah, a legend related to, the, yeah, a country that we love or enjoy. Have chosen the country of Argentina, which I think I mentioned I would do when we talked you last did. time. Yeah, we actually followed through on a, a topic for once, sort of. Okay. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and you said France. I did say France. Which is where you started. Mm-hmm. And then it, well, I mean, it stayed there, basically. Okay. I mean, it, it is a French thing, but it it ends up in America. Okay. Which is good. <laughs> I do remember making that point the first time we recorded this. Okay, so I'm actually going to be talking about Odessa. Yes. Which, it really took me down a line of Nazis escaping to Argentina, mm-hmm. which I, you know how you have like massive gaps of knowledge yeah, when you're a child? It's, yes. And then you realize as you get older that you've missed something in life that yeah. was just purely obvious. Yeah, or you've or you've just forgotten large like yeah. big chunks of, of of history, world history. Yes. Children have a children have a tendency to rationalize things. And I think I realized in this particular instance mm-hmm. I had managed to rationalize a childhood memory, which is that one of my mentors, I the country I spent the most time in outside of America and England is Argentina. Because I grew up playing polo, which is a huge, uh, he's a huge polo community over Mm -hmm. in Argentina. So one of my mentors, I realized probably about 10 years after I met him that his father must have been a Nazi. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that like, I don't know how people say, you know, like a legit Nazi. Yeah. For many, many reasons, which I'm not going to go into because it's not my history. It's not my family. Yeah. But, and, and he rejected his entire family mm-hmm. long before I knew him. But it was very interesting for me to realize that it is a normal part of Argentine culture. Right. And Argentina is the most spectacular country in the world. And it has so many things of storytelling and history of uh, a melting pot. I mean, more than a lot of countries. Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating place to be. But I really hadn't, I don't think, processed the whole Nazi immigration thing there. Right. Even though it was kind of on my doorstep when I was spending time Mm. there. I also had another friend, after I'd made this realization, I'd begun to teach myself about a period of history that I'd apparently managed to just totally ignore my entire life. I... (laughs) I need stuff. Do you have everything? I think so. (laughs) Good, because we're 35 seconds into this podcast. And it's been recording for 12 minutes. Is that tonic in that bottle there? It's gin and tonic. Oh, that's already mixed gin and tonic? Yeah. Okay, cool. That's mine. Okay. Cool. Enjoy. It's nighttime. <laughs> Sun's down. Drinking time starts. Um, what are we talking about on the podcast today, kids? Nazis and Rougarous. Nazis and Supernatural. <laughs> oh, you want to see it? <laughs> I believe I was in the process of saying something profound before my husband yeah, walked you, in. Yeah, you were talking about some personal growth that you made. <laughs> and then my husband w- walked in and ruined that. He always does. No, I was saying that a friend of mine's ex-boyfriend actually used to collect tanks. Mm-hmm. And he was... I Look, I lived a ridiculous childhood. I am aware of this. I re- live a ridiculous life. I am aware of this. But he used to collect tanks in Argentina, which I think makes his life more ridiculous than my life. And I hope I'm never in a position where I think I have enough money to afford a tank. From Argentina? Yeah. Well, any tank, any at any time. 
But he, when he went to buy his tank from Argentina, also got offered a one-person submarine. Mm, World what, War II one-person submarine. I wonder what that was for. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the. I'm going to talk about Argentina and how they got there. But I'm also going to mm. talk about three particularly heinous individuals mm -hmm. and their mini bios and their relationship with Argentina. It's. I think Odessa would have been a legend or is a legend, which yeah. is these. <laughs> periods of how they escaped what was what's the what does odessa actually stand for oh odessa actually stands for hang on it's in page something of my notes uh it stands for organization of former ss members okay. and it as we'll get into in a minute has never had any basis in right. reality so what we're going to talk about is the more general name for these things which are called rat lines mm -hmm. and that's kind of the non-organizational name for what Odessa was. Odessa, in theory, was government-sanctioned. There were many government-sanctioned rat lines. Mm -hmm. Odessa just... Wasn't one of them. Hasn't never been proven to be one of them. Okie dokie. So let's talk a little bit about Argentina. Mm -hmm. it, 1853 constitution granted religious freedom, and the country had a vast and unpopulated land reserve, so they super-encouraged immigration. Mm -hmm. They had... And I think still have one of the most flexible immigration policies, and they really want people moving to the country, and they do whatever they can to really encourage that. And they haven't typically been very um, selective in who they've encouraged. In some ways, that's been great. They accepted a whole load of uh, Jewish people who were fleeing the programs of Russia in 1881. They took in Jewish people right before World War II. And we're actually going to talk a little bit about their history with Jewish population because it obviously ties into what we're talking about and is interesting on its own. But it's always been a pretty flexible idea as to who can go to Argentina. And they've always had Spanish immigrants, German immigrants, Italian immigrants. There isn't... You would think as Latin America, we're talking about a predominantly Spanish culture. But actually, when you go there, you'll find that there's a whole lot of very quite deep-seated, I want to say culture clashes, mm -hmm. but actually it's kind of culture melding in a way that you maybe don't see in other countries necessarily. Mm. So it's really kind of cool, and it has a lot of very positive things. I'm about to go ahead and just, like, slam Argentina for taking in a whole load <laughs> of Nazi war criminals, so I wanted to point out there are some really great things, too. So let's talk about uh, Jose Peron. Yeah. Um. Oh, no. Let's talk about... Juan Perón. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who was uh, married to Evita Perón, which is why some people know, I guess, more about this period of Argentine history than other periods because of Evita. Uh, Adam's looking at me blankly. No idea who so he has about. no idea what I'm talking Not... about. Big old movie with Madonna, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Oh, okay. Have you heard the song? Yeah, but I've never seen the movie. Okay. So he was, uh, he rose to power in 1946. And... He had kind of a conflicting ideology, I think. You've got to remember that uh, even after the Nazis fell, mm -hmm. even after the Axis fell, it wasn't like everyone turned around one day and went, oh, they were evil. It wasn't like everyone thought they were really good up until that point. Right. And then on that day, turned around and said, oh, they're evil. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more complexity to how other particularly fascist countries viewed what Hitler was doing. Mm -hmm. Because Peron certainly had a lot of things about fascism that he admired, but he didn't 
declare war for the Axis. In fact, Argentina stayed very neutral. And then towards the end, they actually declared for the Allies. Mm-hmm. And he, although, let's just talk about how pro- problematic that is, which is that by this point, the Axis were pretty much losing. Mm. And he probably perhaps just declared for the Allies so it would be easier for him to sneak the Germans in. And he would rather be on the winning side, as you would like to be, versus the loser side. Yeah. Um, you want to avoid scrutiny if you're planning on yeah. hustling in some war up criminals. In, and up until this point, he had had, like, he'd actually had really close ties with Nazi Germany. They'd had spies going back and forth on either side. He, you know, it wasn't like he was... He wasn't completely neutral. No. He was not... De- put it this way. If you'd read it up until the point he declared for the Allies, you'd have pretty much thought he was for the Axis. Yeah. <laughs> So he really admired Mussolini. He introduced Catholic religious instruction in Argentinian public schools, so he was quite proud of the Catholic religion. But he also expressed a lot of public sympathy for Jewish rights. He established diplomatic relations with Israel, which we'll go into in a bit. And he was the first government in Argentina to actually allow Jewish people to serve in office. Mm-hmm. So Weird brain guy. Yeah. Uh, he, I'm going to quote his feelings on the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trials. In Nuremberg at that time, something was taking place that I personally considered a disgrace and an unfortunate lesson for the future of humanity. I became certain that the Argentine people also considered the Nuremberg process a disgrace, unworthy of the victors who behaved as if they hadn't been victorious. Now we realize that they, the Allies, deserve to lose the war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like, so I, I don't remember that quote from the first time. I don't time we say it the last time through. Okay. I often don't go through my notes word by word okay. when we go. Um, that makes me, like, I, I'm, I'm pretty appreciative of the, the, the sort of sympathy toward Jewish people and the diplomatic relations yeah. with Israel. But then it, it's like, what? How do you, like, wake up in the morning and have a brain that is like that? So I think a lot of what we're going to talk about comes back to, well, okay, a couple of different things. One, he was looking after a country that had a lot of Germans in it already. Two, he was definitely a president that was building armies and wanted a warlike. Strong military. Strong military. Mm-hmm. And part of that, and this is something that I really hadn't thought about until I started researching this is this idea of punishing people for orders. Yeah, for following orders. Yeah. Which is the whole Nuremberg thing. Yes. So as a soldier, Mm -hmm. how much are you responsible for following the orders of your superior? Mm. Yeah. And it it is a difficult question. Yeah. It is is especially with, with World War II, I think. Well, I mean, Vietnam as well. But, like, you you... Yeah, I like almost don't really want to go into it because it's, it's almost too. You can't, and yeah. I don't even think it's. I don't think it stopped now. I think the person flying the drone that kills the blows up the house. Yeah, are they responsible really for that in any way, or is the person who gave the order for them to right. fly the drone to blow up the house mm. the person who made the call, or is it their superior who got the intelligence? Yeah. So it is. There is a problematic. I. I element to it it's Um, yeah it's i I, 
of all all things political, I'm I'm gonna guess it's one of the things that people are split yeah. most evenly on. So I will say that a lot of the people that I think escaped Argentina would fall into the good soldier category mm. versus the giving orders category. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about the good soldier category people because they don't make history. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, they're yeah. just painted with a brush. Yeah. The other thing about it is that particularly America was super involved in this practice too. Not unaware at all. So as much as we can talk about the Argentine, and I think Peron had probably more of a Nazis are good attitude, which Mm. I don't think the Americans really had at all versus what can we use the Nazis for. Yeah. But certainly no one was condemning this in... The States. Really anywhere. Yeah. Like, smuggling the Nazis into Argentina doesn't seem to have been a condemned action. I mean, for Argentina. Yeah, Yeah. like, the US or the UK or whatever weren't coming out and being like... Stop doing that, please. Yeah. Yeah. There was no evidence I found... That any government... That, with the exception of the Israeli government in West Germany... Yeah. ...did start to really hunt these people down. Mm -hmm. But initially, there wasn't... No one was being quiet, really that quiet about it. Um... Okay, so let's tell you how they were doing it. They were mostly doing it by using religious communities. It is... So Spain was still being ruled by a fascist, okay? As was Italy. Mm. So while the Allies were sweeping through, it there were still large pockets of fascism absolutely mm, yeah. healthy and well in Europe. And as you know, all the European borders are connected, so it really wasn't hard for Nazis who had... Fair warning to be able to slip in. Oh, Nazis who had fair warning to be able to slip into some of the into other European countries yeah. that were much more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Italy being right, kind of high on that list, mm-hmm. and obviously Peron had declared his already declared his admiration for Mussolini. Mm-hmm. So there was ties there to begin with, and the Catholic Church, including the Pope, got involved in helping procure false, false documents to people. One of the people who was most involved in this was an Austrian bishop named Alu Hudel, who was a Nazi sympathizer. And his title, I guess, was the spiritual director of the German people resident in Italy. What it meant is after, at the end of the war in Italy, he became active in ministering to German-speaking prisoners of war internees that were held in the camps in Italy. He received permission to visit he re- received permission to visit these people and most of the people that were being put into the camps were being put into the camps without any documentation mm-hmm. so he actually started writing documentation for them registering them under false names and then he would send that documentation off to the red cross with basically his seal of approval yeah and that would give them refugee status and passports so that they could travel okay that was, I mean, the very basics are that's how the rat line worked. Uh-huh. So there were several, and up until very recently, everyone thought this was just like an SS thing, that they were organizing this within themselves and helping move people. Mm-hmm. Um, the information that this was much more of a systematic government and religious-led program was really only revealed once the documents got declassified, which has been in kind of the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. which is why Odessa has both become a legendary thing 
and then also been found out to be pretty much false. Mm -hmm. So in his memoirs, Huddle said of his actions, I thank God that he allowed me to visit and comfort many victims in their prisons and concentration camps and to help them escape with false identity papers. He wasn't hiding, like I said, no one was hiding this. Not much of a secret. No, and according to these declassified documents, he wasn't the only priest helping escape Nazis' Nazis escape. Um, They went on to name many other priests and religious figures that were actually involved. And most of it was that they used their personal connections in the Red Cross to persuade the Red Cross to issue them their passports. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say, you could go, this is World War II history. There is more written about this than anything else I think we've ever done research on. Yeah. So I took a lot of my research and I didn't cite my sources, but from a Mm. book called The Real Odessa, Wikipedia and a few other places, but mostly um, I used used Wikipedia and then verified those sources, if that makes sense. Uh, I tried to look up a lot more about this Red Cross thing because I wanted to see whether they had ever expressed any acknowledgement Mm. of this. And I really couldn't find anything mm-hmm. from the Red Cross about it. And they do such spectacular work yeah. in the world. And particularly right now, they're doing such spectacular mm-hmm. work. It was just an interesting yeah. blip that they got, you know. So some of the ones that have been confirmed were actually called Spider and the Consolation of Six. And then a whole load of German names that I'm not going to try and pronounce. And... Yuki Goni, who wrote the book that I mentioned, The Real Odessa, he actually was paints a picture that does not even include an organization actually named Odessa. But he talks about how the idea of it is sinister nonetheless, and there are many weighted ideas of actually organized escape networks. Mm-hmm. So because this network exists, or because these networks existed and no one was very silent about them, it also prompted the first wave of Nazi hunters, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. And obviously, Amazon are doing the show hunters. The show hunters, but that's set a little bit later than some of these guys are. Although certainly not that much later, because it was the Cold War that really inspired a, a lot of these. A lot of these people didn't even make it to Argentina until the fifties. A lot of these people didn't really even make it to Argentina until the fifties. So. They were kind of moving there as the Cold War became a thing. Mm -hmm. Russia was pulling any scientists they could find. America was pulling any scientists they could find. Peron seems to have primarily gone after the assholes. Oh, I don't know that I can say that. (laughs) We Um, say that on this podcast. Yeah, okay. He seems to have primarily gone after those of disrespect. The real bad ones. Well, either the ones that were totally benign. Yeah. Where he was just like, I'm just going to populate the country. Yeah. He doesn't seem to have really had a... Was he planning on building a military with Nazi soldiers? He, w- I think there is an idea that he thought he could become a superpower. Okay. There is definitely that idea of, like, admiring these superpowers and mm. thinking he could get there. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the gentleman we're going to talk about would have helped him. No, but if he was bringing in a lot of just German soldiers yeah. um, who were allegedly, reputedly fighting... Fighting the fight for Germany to yeah, what to further this the final solution. Um, it's just it's a bit it's just a bit strange. It's like I want I want either the soldiers or the people who are who are making the making the rules for the soldiers to follow. Yeah, you know he he really um he really wasn't very picky. 
I would like to think that the Americans were being picky about the Nazis yeah. that they were bringing in. <laughs> At least you can sort of justify <laughs> it in that way, I guess. Uh, and, and, you know, this is the period, or we're going into the period of history, where America started doing some really weird stuff because they thought Russia was doing it. Mm. Like, Yeah, they got super paranoid. Yeah. But not only that, they were like, Russians taking, Russia's taking German Nazis. We'll take them. Yeah, that'll prove us right. <laughs> and Russia's doing experiments on whether the mind can solve crime. And they're doing experiments with acid on their people. And We'll do that we'll too. We'll do that too. It'll be great. <laughs> so let's talk about some of these charming gentlemen who made it into Argentina. Okay. The first up is Joseph Mengel, who is also known as the Angel of Death. Which, as monkeys go, real nice. Not one you want. No. He was an officer and physician during World War II. He is mainly remembered for his actions at Auschwitz concentration camp, where he performed deadly experiments on prisoners. He was a member of a team of doctors who selected victims to be killed in the gas chambers, and he was one of the doctors that administered gas. He is also more famously known for being the weirdo that decided to take identical twins and experiment on them because he felt that the one of them was a good control group for the other one. Mm. He had zero disregard for human life, comfort, yeah. anything. Yeah. And I'm saying it in a very sing-songy <sighs> voice because... We have to try to dance past this. <laughs> um, this he's really sucked. sucky. This guy sucked. So he was really an interesting one because he seems to have had this, in my opinion, he seems to have had this plan in place a little bit more solidly beforehand mm -hmm. than say maybe some of the others. He, as the Allies started invading, he transferred from Auschwitz to Gross Rosen concentration camp 10 days before they arrived before the Soviets arrived at Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. He also took most of his documentation with him. So he actually managed to have time to like pack his papers. Yeah. He was actually a doc I mean he actually was a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um just obviously never saw a What's that oath where they promise Hippoc not to? Uh, yeah, Hippocratic oath. Yeah, that's one. Never never dealt with one of those. So he managed to sell to Argentina as soon as 1949, which is one of the earlier escapees. A few of them was kind of a year later. He never was rounded up or captured. He also managed to take most of his files with him. He There's a story of him actually going back to one of the towns as he was escaping to go and pick up some more files. Mm. Like, he, truly evil human being. Yeah. But for definitely worse, believed in what he was doing and thought he was saving a whole load of documentation that would be really useful in the future for people. Yeah. So he fled to South Africa, America. Same thing. Not really. South, South America. <laughs> not the same thing <laughs> at all. He initially lived around Buenos Aires. He fled to Paraguay at 10 years later in 1959 and then on to Brazil. He was tracked by West Germany, Israel, and Nazi hunters, such as who we're going to talk about in a minute, Simon Weissenthal. And he managed to elude capture for his the rest of his entire life. Mm. He drowned in 1979 after suffering a stroke while swimming off the coast of Britagora and was buried under the false name Wolfgang Gerhardt. I really like to think he drowned a slow and painful death drowning, in his stroke. Drowning is not a good way to go. But nope. if you're if you're a horrible scumbag Nazi, I don't 
feel any pity for you. So what we really haven't touched upon because there is no basis to it is this idea that Hitler escaped through these rat lines right. and also lived in South America. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things that like I'm not really going to go into you because there is... It's been so discredited as a It's theory. been so discredited as a theory. It also, I think, uh, limits the absolute credibility of the other escapees. Mm. And I think there was this, certainly this idea as well with Mengel, because he was, I mean, he was really one of the most vilified, rightly, yeah. humans involved in World War II, which is a lot of people felt that he perhaps hadn't died and it was just a ruse mm. to escape. Right. So his son, who had only met him a few times, um, actually offered up DNA and his body was exhumed in 1985 and they did prove that it was him. Good. So that's one dead. So we're going to talk about the next one, who is a more complicated figure and actually one of the ones that we were talking about when we talked about orders, mm -hmm. which is Eric Prebeck, who was a mid-level SS commander. And I s imagine he is probably more of what most of these people fleeing to Argentina were, mm -hmm. which is this mid-level SS kind of person. Yeah. And he would have probably disappeared into the history books entirely, except for he was involved in something called the Fossi Ardentine, which took place in Italy in 1994. And it it's kind of an interesting... There were so many deaths, right? Let's be real clear. When, like, this entire incident accounted for the death of less than 400 people, mm -hmm. which in the scale of World War II. World War II is nothing. But from the sake of the point of view of orders is a fairly interesting mm -hmm. lesson. He, 33 German, per, well, 32 per, German personnel were killed in a bomb. Yep. And then a couple of days later, a 33rd died. And Hitler reportedly but never wrote it down ordered that with uh ordered very quickly within like 24 hours of this incident that 10 condemned italians were to be shot for each dead german mm -hmm. so a guy named kapler quickly compiled a list of 320 prisoners he then another one else someone else died so he just added 10 more to the list because numbers that's what he thought and yet 335 people were killed. Mm -hmm. Now, I read somewhere that this was like, we're not, they were condemned prisoners in Italy, but some of them were 14. I think there were two 14 year old boys in this crowd of people. Mm -hmm. So most of the people executed were members of the Red Flag, which is like, I think the Soviet army. Mm -hmm. And weren't they Italian revolutionaries? I maybe. Maybe. Because they were captured by the Germans. In Nazi-occupied Germany. Oh, well, that makes sense. They would have been I'm assuming they would have been revolutionaries. And about seventy Jews. Okay. So not this wasn't primarily a Jewish crime, right? Um. So Prebeck was second in charge. Mm -hmm. Lost all that. Yeah. So he was responsible for shooting them, taking them down to the caves, and executing them, and executing them. Now. During the killings, it was found that a mistake had been made and that five additional people who were not on the list were brought up to the caves and they he shot them. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, in the grand scheme of a massacre of 130 people, five people extra is really valid here because he was ordered to shoot 
130 people. 330 330 people. people. And he shot 335. Mm -hmm. So those last five are on him. Yeah. This is where this all goes anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. This is where where they break it down in the court. Yeah, exactly. And he, so he, okay, so he was uh, one of the first people that he was fairly early to get out. He, he wasn't like a commanding officer in the SS, mm-hmm. right? He was one of the earlier people to get out. He disappeared off to Argentina, and that was where he lived for 50 years, mm-hmm. nearly. Now, a couple of books were written about his role in this, and an ABC reporter had actually tracked him down in Argentina. He wasn't living particularly secretively. He, I don't know. So 50 years later, he kind of... I guess assumed that no one would bother prosecuting him. Yeah. Because he chatted to this ABC news reporter mm-hmm. about who he was. He confirmed who he was. Anyway, this is the beginning of an extradition process of hell. Mm-hmm. Because it took about four years for them to manage to extradite him. Mm-hmm. They had all these different delays. One was this. Uh, one, they asked whether all the Italian documents could be translated into Spanish, which if they had allowed that, they didn't. But if they'd allowed it, it would have taken about two years yeah. just to translate the documents. They argued that since he was now an Argentine resident, the statute of limitations on murder was 15 years and it was obviously passed, that it wasn't a war crime, mm-hmm. and that primarily he was ordered to do it. He did not do the ordering. He was not. He was a a good soldier. Yeah. In 1995, he was finally extradited. So this is about four years after they've realized where he is, a year after he does this interview with ABC. Mm-hmm. And he, because they basically say crimes against humanity cannot expire. Yeah. Whole load more stuff. And then he eventually, after another 17 months, made it back to Italy. Mm-hmm where he was tried and found not guilty. Mm -hmm. And then he appealed it and he was found guilty. And then he appealed that again and he was found not guilty. And he died in Rome, a free man on October the 11th at the age of 100 from natural causes. (laughs) And if you want to read one of the world's most boring criminal cases of bureaucracy, international bureaucracy, his is pretty much up there. But what's really interesting about it is that it was just this total power play between many different countries. Mm -hmm. So he died from natural causes. His last request was to be returned to Argentina so he could be buried alongside his wife. Argentina said, no, thank you. We don't want you back. The Vatican banned any Catholic church in holding his funeral. Mm. And his hometown in Germany refused to take his body. So they tried to bury him in one place. It created riots. Mm -hmm. So now no one knows where he is. And it's interesting that, of, I mean, he was obviously a horrific human, but it's interesting that of all the people that we're talking about or that committed crime, Mm -hmm. his essential crime was five murders, which in the grand scheme of Goebbels, Goring, Goring, Himmler. Yeah, the guy we just talked about. Yeah, uh, and the guy we're just about to talk about. Yeah. It doesn't really blip. No. Okay, so the guy we're going to talk about, worst 
Possibly. Oh, I don't know. I, do, I really don't know who's worse. He sucks just as bad as the first guy, if not more. He sucks real bad. They suck. They all suck. And his name is Otto Aldorf, Aldorf Eichmann. God, Otto Aldorf Eichmann. Yep. Hey. Hey. Good job. All right. Screw and <laughs> he literally coined the term the final solution of the Jewish question. <laughs> Um, he was a major organizer of the Holocaust. He was uh, in charge of facilitating and managing the logistics involving the mass de deportation of Jews to ghettos and extermination camps. Really, I mean, the evil Mengel was, I mean, at least, no, no. I can't, I can't <laughs> no. do it. Just yeah. really bad in different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all. Oh, anyway, okay. So we're going to skip to, that was what he did during the war. Yeah. But we're not really talking about the war. No. At the end of the war, he was captured by U.S. forces, and he spent time in uh, camp for SS officers. And he was one of the ones that our previous nice uh, little Nazi smuggler, Bishop mm. Alos Hudel, he was his most famous escapee. Mm. Of course he was. Yeah. He obtained, so he was actually living under the papers Otto Eichmann. Ekman. Okay, so this is like, he lives between two names, which is Ekman, Eichmann, and something else. So I'm just going to go back and forth. Yep. Same dude. Um, he escaped from work detail when he realized his actual identity had been discovered. He then relocated frequently, ultimately moving to Lindbergh Heath. He got work in a forest industry and leased a small plot of land where he lived until 1950. In 1948, however, he had still been trying to work to get to Argentina, mm -hmm. and he finally did obtain a landing permit. And with the help of our friendly bishop, he was off, and he got one of his passports through the Red Cross um, as a humanitarian passport, which is just sick, awful. He traveled across Europe, staying in a series of monasteries. Mm. And then he departed from Genoa by ship and so, arrived in Buenos Aires. Were those monasteries on the rat trail? Oh. Yep. They okay. were set up as safe houses. Cool. Great. Uh, super stoked on that. Uh-huh. So he... I was kind of hoping that you were going to say no and that due to the fact that he had a fake passport, they were... No, no, for no. For intents and purposes, ignorant to this, but that really... Yeah, okay. No, Carry no. On. Monasteries actually put up Nazis. Carry on. Happily. Carry on. Well, we gotta assume not not everyone was happy. I would hope not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask someone. Um, yeah, we'll ask okay. one Catholic person. Yeah. And they can tell us for everybody. <laughs> he moved to Buenos Aires. He finally became a department head at Mercedes Benz and built himself quite a nice house. He interviewed for a whole load of biographies and produced tapes, manuscripts, handwritten notes, and wrote a memoir, uh, which appeared in Life magazine. Jesus. So what this is he, the kind of guy you want to get black bagged? I, this just okay, and that's where we're going. So he's really pretty bad. Yes, and he profited off of his horribleness. Yeah. And so, Mercedes Benz hired him. It's worth note. I just thought I'd put Mercedes Benz in there. So he obviously attracted quite a lot of Nazi hunters. Yes, good. And. West Germany and Israel and a whole load of other places really wanted him back. Wanted him back. So, but along with all those articles, he, they kind of knew where he was and that he was alive because of these articles, yeah. but they didn't know much more. Yeah. 
Um, Wissenthal, who was the guy I was talking about, he got really involved in trying to track him down. Mm -hmm. But the big break in the case came when Lothar Herman was, who was a half-Jewish German who'd emigrated to Argentina right before the uh, World War II to mm -hmm. escape the Nazis, his daughter came home and said, hey, Dad, my I'm dating this lovely, nice guy. His name is Klaus Eichmann. And his uh, dad was a Nazi. I, okay, I'm assuming that's not how that conversation no. actually went. But <laughs> either way, she came and yeah. told. And Herman then sent his daughter back on a date with this prince of a man mm. and said, go meet, go meet his family. Yeah. So she did. And she was met at the door by Eichmann who said that he was Klaus's uncle mm -hmm. and Klaus arrived and then called him father and she is not an idiot. So she put two and two together. Mm. I also read somewhere and this didn't come up before, but somewhere in this point, his father had died and he attended the funeral too. So they had pictures of him. So there was okay. a lot of, it wasn't just this one. Yeah. There was a lot of agencies collecting a lot of information about him in the early sixties, mm -hmm. late fifties, early sixties. The actual, on the father. Right. Not no, on yeah, on the father of Klaus. Yes, Otto. Yes. Okay. But Otto's father was the one that died. Yes. Okay. So okay. He, okay so Klaus's grandfather. Okay, yeah, yeah. Klaus's yeah, grandfather. Sorry. Poor Klaus getting involved yeah, in. Poor boy. He was dating a Jewish girl. What a moron. You got to assume he was thought his maybe. What an absolute idiot. Also, that girl's a badass. Yeah. Like, total badass. I cannot imagine how terrifying that would be. So, as we've already discussed. Extradition in Argentina doesn't work very well. It's not a thing. So they decided to take things into their own hands. And Mossad, in, on May 11th, 1960, um, as he was leaving the bus stop to walk home, one of them, his name, in fact, was Peter Malkin, engaged, in, uh, engaged him in conversation, asking him in Spanish if he had a moment. Apparently, he was frightened, tried to run away. Three men grabbed him, wrestled him to the ground, moved him into a car, and hid him on the floor under a blanket. Mm -hmm. They then put him in a safe house for nine days in Buenos Aires as they tried to track down Mengel because they wanted to put them both on the same flight. Mm -hmm. But Mengel had done a much better job of disappearing, yeah. so they couldn't find him. So they sedated, sedated Ekman and dressed him as a flight attendant and smuggled him out on the same aircraft that had carried the Israeli delegation in a few days earlier for the official 150th anniversary celebration of Argentina's independence. <laughs> because actually Israel and Argentina had a really good relationship, which is what we will, oh, not really good, but a pretty good relationship, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. So once he got back, uh, Israel turned around and said, hey, look who we got. And all hell broke loose. Yeah, Argentina, there was a whole wave of anti-Semitism reaction mm -hmm. america got real annoyed because they had known he'd been there for a while and were just happy living letting him live there mm. because they didn't want rush to have him right so they were like well we know where he is that will do and west germany had a similar attitude they'd also known for about two years because it basic basically they were fighting the cold war yeah. and him being in argentina living a benign life absolutely served them fine yeah they did not need him Showing back up. Showing back up. Mm -hmm. So they were quite happy to just leave him doing all of that. There was a big international throw about Israel said that it was private citizens that had kidnapped him and therefore it was a private crime. And they were eventually found guilty of a war crime, like of an international yeah. crime. But them and Argentina actually came to a decision. Uh, they, they had like 
they issued a joint statement saying that after further negotiations, they admit that they violated Argentinian sovereignty, but they agreed to end the dispute and Israeli could keep them. So again, that really like close relationship between Argentina and Israel coming in mm-hmm. to play there. His trial began on April 6th, 1961. And on December 12th, he was convicted on 15 counts of crime against humanity, war crimes, crimes against the Jewish people, and members of criminal membership in a criminal organization. He was deemed responsible for the dreadful conditions on board the deportation trains and for obtaining Jews to fill those trains. In addition, he was also found guilty of crimes against Jews. He was fined again. In addition to the crimes against Jews, he was also convicted for crimes against Poles, Slovenes, and Gypsies. He was found guilty of membership of three organizations that had been declared criminal at the Nuremberg trials, which were the Gestapo, the SD, and the SS. However, he was not guilty of personally killing anyone and not guilty of overseeing and controlling the activities of the actual extermination camps. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that matters, but it's in here, so I figured I would... Mention it. Mention it. He was sentenced to death. And on December 15th, which I think is amazing because he was sentenced to death, just sentenced to... He was sentenced to death on December 12th. His final words, long live Germany, long live Argentina, long live Austria... These are the three countries with which I have been most connected and which I will not forget. I greet my wife, my family, and my friends. I am ready. We will meet again soon, as is the fate of all men. I die believing in God. I would also like to point out that he died completely unrepentant. Right. Uh, Like, none of these guys seems to have any... No surprise there. ...repentantness. All right, real quick, because I know we're we're running. We're running time-wise. We're going fast, because it's late for us. Yeah. But real quick, let me tell you a little bit about Jewish history in Argentina because I knew even less about this than I did about Nazi history in Argentina. Would never have guessed that there was any Jewish history in Argentina. Indeed. And in fact, up until about the 1960s, there were over 300,000 Jews in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um, and very few cases of anti-Semitism in, during the war. There were these breakouts like when... I, I mean, I'm not going to say this was like a peaceful... Right. Nothing was... There is no way that a country populated with Jewish people and Nazis could be an could it be peaceful? <laughs> could be a anti free of anti yeah, semitism yeah, yeah. anti semitism. Yes, um, but generally, it wasn't a particularly awful country. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1967, they actually were ruled by a military government that opposed. I I didn't know any of this. I learned a lot of it. That opposed a um, that also pondered the Jewish question themselves. Mm -hmm. And they had lots of other problems with people, much like the Nazis. Yeah. And a lot of people in the country at that point just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, disappeared. I read an article from a woman who's realized she was adopted and her parents had been disappeared. Okay. Um, (laughs) They just... That's horrifying. So they... What's interesting to me is it's horrific that they suffered further persecution having escaped. I mean, we're talking some people in this say they were living to be, say was someone was living to be 100. They've perhaps gone through Russian programs, persecution, mm-hmm. escaped. Nazi Germany. To that, escaped to Nazi, escaped to Germany. Which very, which not too long afterward. Yeah. Then they escaped Nazi Germany to go to Argentina where they then got persecuted again. Pretty miserable. Kind of puts corona in perspective. Life's not been kind to Jewish people. No. I, my husband's Jewish, so I'm saying this with understanding of the fact that 
there are a lot pe- more people it's unkinder to mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so Israel, so during, before this, before this government had come into play, Israel had actually set up a special agreement with the Argentine military government and governments generally to allow Jews that were arrested for political crimes to emigrate back to Israel, citing an Argentine law that allowed Argentine citizens in prisons to emigrate to another country if it was willing to take them in. So actually, while it saw a huge decrease in the Jewish population, Mm. it wasn't necessarily a massacre in the same way that, because they, uh, they all moved, primarily they all moved back to Israel. Yeah. So there was a massive fleeing of Jews to Israel at this period. Um, In 1983, there was a democratically elected president of Argentina. He really enjoyed the support of the Jewish population and appointed many Jews in high positions. Mm -hmm. So he started to look up. And by 1990, they thought it was all as hunky-dory as it gets in that respect. But early in the 1990s, there was another fresh wave of anti-Semitism thought, anti-Semitic thought in Argentina. Argentina. Okay. And two major terrorist attacks killed and wounded numerous Jews. Neither has been sol- solved. One, the Israeli embassy was bombed, killing 29 people. And in 1994, the Jewish community center in Buenos Aires was bombed, killing 85 people and wounding more than 200. So that sucks. Yeah. That's... Just, just to show it's not. However... Jewish culture and religious organizations flurry in the cities and Yiddish press theaters are in Buenos Aires. There's a Jewish hospital and number of Zionist organizations. There are still approximately 181,000 Jews living in Argentina. Most of them live in Buenos Aires uh, or Córdoba, which are the two of the biggest cities. And by the way, beautiful and definitely you should visit Córdoba. And, but it's the largest Jewish population in Latin America. Mm-hmm. It's the third largest in the Americas, sixth largest or seventh, I, it, I don't know if found an old source, sixth or seventh largest in the world. And Buenos Aires is the 16th largest Jewish city in the world by population. Mm. The government also recognizes major Jewish holidays, which is a big thing in a Catholic country. Yeah. And it's a very Catholic country where it authorizes Jews to have two days of vacation each for Rosh, Hash, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Yeah. Okay, I can say these ones because I know them. Uh, <laughs> to have two days of vacation each for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and for the first and last two days of Passover. So, complicated history. Yeah. Between the Nazis and the Jews in and Argentina. Argentina. Which, I don't know. It's a whole... It's a whole facet of the... The war that I wasn't super knowledgeable about. I always, like, okay, this is going to sound bad or good. I was trying to avoid it war, but I have a yeah. degree in history, and I did everything I could to just... Not talk about war. Just skip over it. Honestly, yeah. I have no interest in battles. Mm-hmm. Like, I know some of my friends who are historians who really appreciate, like, they want to know where the troops moved and how it got flanked, and I have so little interest in that. Yeah. But this kind of war... Mm. That idea of war, and I actually find the Cold War really fascinating for the same yeah, reason. They, they called it a war, but no one. There was I like no, there were no battles fought. Cultural, cult the cultural side of war, mm-hmm. and I learned a lot. Honestly, I learned a huge amount yeah, researching it's, that. It's a super interesting 
And it's a history lesson, I'm sorry. I don't know that it's as legendary as a history lesson, but it certainly started it's, out. It's interesting because it's not... Like, Argentina's obviously involved. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> but it's not like a... It's not like an, it's not like an Argentinian legend. No, and by the way, there are some really cool ones, and maybe I should do... At the beginning of next week, I'll do, like, a 30-second one. Oh, just a quick, yeah. Yeah, like, of a... There's a... The national tree and flower is the same tree. Huh. And... I maybe I'll do a thirty-second one. Um, no, 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 I'm, I'm not. I'm not discrediting the fact that, no, this, is, that this was a, a very stellar topic for the podcast. It's just, it is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. But you, on the other hand, went much more classic legendary I did, tales. I did. I did a very legendary thing, sort of legendary enough to be mentioned in some very popular media. A supernatural. I did. Uh, so I, I chose to do Rougarous. Uh, A.K.A. basically werewolves. Yeah, but not really werewolves. No, um, and have sort of evolved over the. Because I think if you say years. that they're werewolves, then that kind of it leaves. Imp- it doesn't. When you say the word werewolf, it implies like three, the three truths of werewolves, which is you're a werewolf during a full moon. Yeah. You can be killed by silver, silver. and the curse is transmitted. A bite. Yes, and almost none of those. None of that translates okay. at all. But there are some crossovers. Okay. The Rougarou. The Rougarou legend comes from the French settlements in North America. Mm-hmm. Rougarou is a, a deviation, I guess, from the French words "lou guru." Okay. Lou being the French word for wolf. Uh, guru being a again a deviation of the word werewolf in English. Yeah. Don't know how that okay. works, but it's just what the internet says. Okay. So Yay, I, I internet. Ta- I take it at face value with zero skepticism. Do you want to do your sources? <clears throat> oh, yes. I do want to do my sources. Thank you very much. Because I missed my sources. So I got most of my information from folk. Oh, no. Adam's notes strike again. From they fol- were fine last time. How have they died so quickly? My handwriting got worse. <laughs> from folklore.usc.com, from theadventuresofjeanlafitte.com, and nativelanguages.org. Cool. Right. So Rougarous come from oral traditions from the French settlements in North America. Give a little bit of the background of that. In 1608, Samuel de Champlain settled the first French settlement in Quebec, and they would eventually from there immigrate down to northern New York. And once they got into New York and Maine, they began to interact with some of the Native American tribes there, primarily, I think, Algonquin. Again, very ignorant on... Native American tribes, I believe Algonquin is the name of the name of the tribe, and their stories started to combine. And then in the 1660s, they migrated even farther south. Um, as maybe you know, uh, Louisiana was is a French colony uh, named after Louis the Fourteenth. Guys, if you haven't been to New Orleans, I've never been to New Orleans. It is so worth going, I, and definitely a place we will address at some point yeah. i'm sure in this yeah um and it, again there the uh, stories with the, the native americans down there the story just goes on and on yeah um, and they they vary based on the location the story uh, varies what was interesting uh this isn't gonna be as interesting this time around for dora but it will be interesting for the listeners um <laughs> is the french were coming south they settled in Midwest, they, they, yeah. they had settlements in Detroit and St. Louis, which is Michigan and Missouri. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and they also had settlements in Memphis, Natchez, and Mobile. 
which so are Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and Alabama, respectively. So for the first time around, my American geography isn't great, but even I realized that those cities were nowhere near each other. Even the even the three southern cities aren't that close together. Um, but the whole area was called New France, which I think is just kind of interesting. Did they have settlements in between them that were French, or is it literally those? No, I. I don't know, honestly. That's I'm, so weird. I'm assuming, weird. They, I'm assuming they did, and these are just sort of five big yeah. cities. Because as, as I told Dora, and as she knows, when the English immigrated to America, when they when they when the, those people fled, they settled in what is now known as New England, mm-hmm. and they sort of stayed there. Yeah, they stayed in the th- the thirteen original colonies. The French were smarter. They went looking for warm weather. Yes, they went to the warm the warm climate with the easier to grow crop soil. Yeah, the English wanted to. Stay cold and miserable for some reason. <laughs> Suck it up. <laughs> Suck it up, buttercup. Um, the the settlers were mostly fur traders, pioneers. They sort of had the really adventurous walking around jobs. And if you're doing the fun walking around jobs, the main way you're going to have fun at the end of the day is to tell yourself a little story. Yeah. They're mostly folk- folklorists was their hobby. Uh, I found an article or a book, I think. It was an excerpt from a book called French Folklore and Old Vincennes. Old Vincennes is a city in Indiana. So, again, we have another Midwestern city that is historically relevant to French settlements. Yeah. This book was founded during the New Deal by the Works Progress Administration, specifically the Federal Writers Project. Um, And they were sort of focused on tracing folklore, where it came from, where it went. Just making jobs up anywhere they could. They they were just like, we need jobs. This is a job. Anyone can do this job. (laughs) Please inject our economy. And they found, obviously, storytelling was very important to French settlers during social gatherings. And I've got a few quotes about what this writer found out from the person that they were interviewing. The person they interviewed's name was Pepe Boucher. And the I, Frenchest name ever. So Frenchest. And I'll be reading uh, one of the short stories that was transcribed from him. But what they, they learned about Rougarous is that it was a powerful werewolf or someone who was cursed to be a dog, wolf, cow, horse, or other animal. So I really think this sounds like the Jamaican roaring calf. Yes. I talked about a few episodes ago. With the duddies, right? It's, it's not that. It's duppies. Duppies, yes. Yeah. So the roaring calf is like terrifying, fire-breathing, but it can be a whole load of random different animals. Yeah, which would make sense because that we I think we can sort of loosely prescribe that to, to voodoo. Yeah. Uh, it's like which, as we'll find in ca- the Cajun culture, is yeah. a combination of, I'm going to do this. I should have looked this up. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Uh, you know yeah. what? At the end of last episode, yeah, we didn't have a, when we, at the end of the last episode, at the end of the episode, this episode that we recorded. We didn't have a. We didn't have a topic. So maybe we will do like, we'll do each one for New Orleans or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Because that's a really cool city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's And, and just the fact, there's so many cultures going on there and it's become this sort of very unique. Yeah. We could thing. do it like a New Orleans special. Yeah, that might be a good idea. Okay. Which would, yeah, so that, but that would make sense, the sort of voodoo yeah. tie-in to the Native American. Yeah, just interesting, this idea of, I don't, there's a lot of very... Not strict folklore when it comes to like vampires and unicorns right. and stuff like that. But they're very, they have core ideas yeah. that are, that's and a vampire. Usually it's to do with kind of what animal they are, which is interesting that both this and the roaring calf. Yeah. Although it's called a roaring calf, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. Hmm. The Jamaica episode. That episode's one of my favorite episodes that mm-hmm. we did. But that was a really interesting tale. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty interesting. Another quote was, the curse would cause the victim to roam the countryside at nighttime for 100 days. 
that the person who was cursed could be released if someone recognized them as being a Rougarou okay. and drew their blood, and that if their secret was revealed to anyone other than the former Rougarou and their hunter, then they would both be reverted back into their Rougarou state, and they would be Rougarous for longer. Okay. Probably, Weird. Probably some sort of cautionary ta- tale, maybe. Yeah, keep secrets. Yeah, keep secrets or don't be a snitch. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> I do have written in my notes basically just werewolves. Their curses come down to lycanthropy, which is just you're, you turn into a wolf at nighttime. The curse can be transmitted through rougarou bites or a witch can curse you. Okay. Make you real sad. Okay. Do you have to do anything to piss off this witch? I think witches are generally seen in stories as just being Okay. Angry. Well, witches, because that's not true at all. No, some of them are kind of nice. I know nice witches. Okay, move on. <laughs> Um, and there's also some contradic- contradictions about how long the curse lasts, that it's permanent, or you can transform at will, which would okay. be handy. Or is it a full moon? What is it? Okay. And can it be cured? Can it not be cured? It just depends on who If you can transform at will, I'd take it. I think I would, too. Not based on the Rougarous and Supernatural. Um, yeah. Because that guy was just horrifying. He mm-hmm. just had a really messed up, like, wormy face. But generally, if I could be like a fancy being a horse or a dog dog for for 24 hours. Yeah. I'll do that. Yeah. Run around a bit. That'd be my cats. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) My cats have. Good lives. The life. They have the best lives. In Cajun folklore, uh, the Rougarou is an Acadian word. Acadia is a national park in Maine. But Acadia itself was a settlement, a French settlement in, in Maine, New York, Quebec. Um, and the word Acadia actually became the word Cajun when it moved down to Louisiana area, oh, okay. which is why I asked, you don't know this, but Dora's mother is nearly fluent in French. And so yeah. I asked her how you would pronounce Acadia in French if you were French. It sounds nothing like the word Cajun. And she didn't know. And she did. She wasn't, obviously wasn't fully aware because it's not her birth language, but it's just weird language. Yeah. Just does weird things as well. Uh, it's sort of associated with the Louisiana Bayou. So Rougarous are the swamp monster, and they became a cautionary tale for Cajun children because a Rougarou in that culture contracts their curse if they don't manage to follow their Lent promises for seven years in a row. I'd be. We'd be so screwed. I'd be. Well, you're also not Catholic, so. No. So I don't know if that applies to people who aren't Catholic. Well, then you're just cultural appropriating someone else's culture someone when else, we all say, go, oh, I'm going to give up this for Lent. Someone else's curse. You're appropriating yeah. another culture's Don't culturally curse. appropriate <laughs> someone else's curse. Uh, and this is basically to keep children out of the swamp because alligators and giant snakes aren't scary enough. You need transforming werewolves. Okay, you mentioned this last time. Mm-hmm. Was like a Lent thing to stay out the swamp? Was that like something they gave up for Lent? No. <laughs> no, so the, the the interesting thing about Lent is that when the French were immigrating to the States, what would become the United States, only the French Catholics were allowed to leave. Okay. Which isn't interesting to you this time around. Yeah. Because you heard it already. But it is weird. French Protestants weren't allowed in America. So interesting. Weren't, weren't allowed to immigrate for whatever Who reason. Who kind of said that? And where was the, where were they emigrating to? Was there like an Ellis Island at this point? No, I they have so many questions. They were just showing up, and so then who was like, "I'm sorry, you're not Catholic." I don't know. I don't know if they just weren't allowed to leave or or what. And I also don't know what what time period this would have been because I I'm my my American <laughs> history is so poor. Um, so, all right, someone out there will know. Because history is just not my thing. Tell um, us, send us a message saying how much you enjoy the podcast and then correct everything yes. we say. Tell us how stupid we are and then tell us how much you love the podcast. And then, yes, please tell me when the French were coming to America. And tell us 
yeah, who was stopping the Protestants from coming? Because as far as I'm aware, it was English Protestants who founded America in the first place. And you would think the French would Protestants would want to get out of France. Yeah, because they didn't France want to, was never super kind to the Protestants. No. And they didn't want to be in a Catholic run country no. anyway, I wouldn't assume. Anyway. Oh. You're, you're producing more questions than answers yes. right now. Yes. Sorry. So that, this is just a failed podcast episode. Better scrap it. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> so some of the other Native American influences, uh, we have the Metis and the Cree tribes, which I think are the Algonquin heading, very specifically the Metis and the Cree in North America. What I found interesting is that they spread all the way from Canada down to Virginia. So there's okay. evidence of them being all over the East Coast. This tribe, not Rougarous. This tribe, but they have a Rougarou story. Okay. So it would have. Yeah. You know. Okay. But they're, oh, they didn't have Rougarous. Sorry. They're Wendigos. Oh, okay. Which are very similar, but they just sort of bled together. And then they also have the ice monsters. In Supernatural, what do you think is scarier, the Wendigos or the Rougarous? The Wendigo, because it's so fast. Yeah. The Rougarou is just like a super strong dude. Yeah, that's true. Wait, we'll talk about the supernatural Rougarou, uh, because how could we not? If you don't know, uh, Isadora and I and my cousin Ben, her husband, are obsessed. He regularly interrupts the podcast. Yes, if you hear him slamming doors and, and talking in the background. Aren't obsessed, haven't gone to a convention. We would if there was one in the area, but we have, I've seen the show twice. So I've seen 26 seasons of this show. I distinctly remember the reali- moment I realized I liked the show. I was living in LA and someone said to me, have you seen the show Supernatural? And I was like, eh, it's all right. And they were like, okay. I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. Although I have the first three seasons on box set if you want to borrow them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, I think I'm a fan. And I was like, oh, actually, maybe I like them more than I realized because <laughs> I keep going to buy the box <laughs> sets. Um, the Algonquin Indians believed that engaging in cannibalism would cause a person to become a Wendigo. Okay. It's basically you just eat human flesh and the act of doing something so vile. I wonder what the moral of that story is. Don't be a cannibal. <laughs> because it, I, I, that, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I don't really know the physical descriptions of a Wendigo or their strengths yeah. or anything. But eating human flesh is not good for other humans. It, no, it does actually send you a bit nutty. Yeah. So, the, I mean, there's a, a very logical reason why we don't do that. Yeah. Don't start. Yeah, no cannibals, please. Another tribe, the Chenu tribe. Uh, believed that becoming a Wendigo or uh, their ice monster, which didn't seem to have a specific name, okay. was caused by possession of an evil spirit. They also mm-hmm. believed in cannibalism, believed it could be cannibalism that caused it, or even going so far as to withhold food from a starving person. And this would literally cause your heart to turn into ice. Hmm. And there are some stories of being able to melt the the, the heart and curing them of their ice Let monsterism. Yes, and that's where the <laughs> plot of Frozen <laughs> came from. Interestingly, that was weird. Interestingly, Rougarou wands. Oh my god! Interestingly, in in <laughs> okay, I sing one line from a. <laughs> no, it was um, it didn't pick up. Oh, I'll do it again yeah, then. Please do. do. You wanna build a snowman? Now we're gonna get copyright <laughs> strikes from Disney. We're gonna be screwed. <laughs> Rougarou fur is used in as a wand core in in the Harry Potter wizarding world. You know. When you first told me this, mm-hmm. that was like legitimately new information. And bearing in mind, I you're am obs- married. Actually obsessed with Harry Potter. Like you're fans of Supernatural, but Ben is. Ben obs- is absolutely obsessed actually with obsessed Potter. with Harry yes. Potter. I I would say my Supernatural Harry Potter. About the same. About the same. Yeah. I total appreciation. No obsession. Not. I would go to a convention. Yeah. I'd wear a Slytherin robe to a convention with a bunch of other. I nerds. may have had a Harry Potter themed wedding. But that's not obsessive. That wasn't me. I mean, <laughs> that's that was, not obsessive. That was me six years ago. Um, 
I've only been to Comic-Con about four times. I'm not a nerd. I'm not a nerd at all. Uh, anyway, I actually didn't know that yeah. because I, it turns out I haven't seen the fantasy the newest fantastic piece neither have i so we'll have to we'll have to watch those some evening but yep. i thought that was interesting because what i do really like about the wizarding world mm-hmm. um is whoever is continuing to do the like the american wizarding school world building is doing such a good job of it i don't know yeah. if it's J- i think jk rowling i don't know if it's jk rowling or whoever's doing it is doing a good lord ben steps in every time we have anything I know, I know. and now he's like he's missing an action uh-huh. All of that, like all of the house names, are their yeah. their mythical creatures that are specific mm-hmm. to North American tribes. Yeah. It's set on a mountain in Massachusetts, the highest point in Massachusetts, which is dope. And to have a a wand core specific to a Native American legend, I think is just really that's awesome. really cool. No, we'll have to absolutely we'll have to yeah. go watch the new movies. These wands do unfortunately have affinity for the dark arts. So if you got a wand with a Rougarou core, I'm gonna steer clear of you. I do find it odd that they would even bother doing those wands because it just seems to sort of be encouraging bad well, behavior. It's a little bit like that moment when in the last Harry Potter movie they put the entirety of the house of Slytherin in the dungeon. And you're like, <laughs> that seems kind of mean. Well, yeah, but also it seems a little late. Yeah, they've already done their damn it. They're, well, not even that, but like. <laughs> oh, you let Slytherin like start a house that was. They, like... There's no like the one thing I would say is that J.K. Rowling should have put like two or three redeeming people from Slytherin in Slytherin. She didn't. I, yeah. Because then at least you'd be like, okay, we don't condemn an entire house. Yeah. Just, because but, of broad. Broad brush strokes. Yeah, but if they are going to condemn an entire house, they should at least just let the sorting hat be like, oh, Slytherin? Yeah, okay, them... you are no longer allowed to be educated <laughs> in... Get. Go yeah. get out. Like I said, not a, not obsessed. Not obsessed at all. Not obsessed. Um, okay. No, that is interesting. But, I mean, she did try to do that in the epilogue of the seventh book, though, where her, his son, where Harry's son is like, what if I get into Slytherin? Yeah. And then he's like, Snape was redeeming, and you're like, no, Snape is a total jerk. Mm-hmm. Snape was not a good dude. I mean, Alan Rickman, now he's amazing. He was a good, he was a good dude. Rip, rip in peace, Alan, Alan but, Rickman. But Snape was not, never, no. was never, and when he died in the seventh book, I felt, spoiler alert, I guess, if you haven't read the seventh Harry Potter <laughs> book, which is now like 15 years old, um, <laughs> When he died, she wrote this, like, long, like, and you're, like, meant to feel bad for him. And I was, like, good. I was, like, I'm glad he's dead because he was just an ass. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like that dude dying in of a stroke and a, like. Oh, no, no, I'm happy that he died. I was just sort of meh about Snape dying. I, 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 yeah, I don't know how I feel about Snape dying. I should have a, I'm obsessive. Sh- I should have opinions on that. You should have a that. strong opinion about it. should this. have a strong opinion on it. Maybe we should do a legendary episode about Ben's legendary opinion that Dumbledore is actually the most evil person in, in the in whole Harry of Potter. Harry Potter. We'll just have him come on and talk for three and a half hours. And we'll just go sit, watch the Wizarding World movies yeah. or whatever. No, I, I'm, I should have an opinion. I don't. Yeah. So, and, and another modern thing, as we've mentioned previously, is the Rougarou is obviously an episode. Of, it's a monster of the week in an episode of Supernatural. Yeah. When they decided they couldn't be bothered to write any plot, they usually copy and paste of Creature. They have done the Wendigo before, and that's almost entirely a... I believe Wendigo is episode number one, one or two? One or, I think it is one, actually. No, it's two, because one is when they go and get Sam from Stanford, okay. I think. An episode number, and one of my... good. Dearly Departed Friends is in yeah. episode two. I think two. I think it is two. It is two. Um, because one is where they go hunting. Yeah. Where it's the whole thing with Jess and the... Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so Wendigo basically just yeah. copied and pasted from Wikipedia, ate some human skin, got super strong and fast, and is now hunting in the woods in Colorado. 
Yeah, but this is also back when they thought they would probably not get picked right, up. Right, right, right. But this, I mean, they still sort of yeah. generally are, I'm not going to say not creative because I like this show, but, you know, when they, they just pick a monster and it's like the most, this monster. Yeah, yeah, stuff. okay, yeah. But when they did the Rougarou, they sort of spiced it up. They they made it they made it supernaturally. Um, and the Rougarou in that show is cursed, but it's a genetic curse, and it doesn't kick in until you turn 30. And then once you turn 30, you are sated. You, you have a hunger that can't be sated. And you just keep eating meat, and, and, and once you eat human flesh, that's it. You're a Rougarou now. Yeah, I remember that episode. It was yeah. pretty gross. It was, a, it was a really grody episode. Visually, he was eating all that raw mince with yeah. his hands, and it's Really well filmed, actually, now that I, I'm thinking about a show that I frequently mock yeah. while we're watching it. But yeah, very interesting. I thought that was kind of cool. Cool. I see the laptop's out. That means you're going to tell me a story. The laptop is out. I'm going to read a story that I could barely contain myself from laughing the first time I read it. Because this is... Uh, it is written in the dialect. It is a phonetic, I believe yeah. is the, the word, phonetically written story as told by Pepe Boucher, our, our famous <laughs> French man. Um, and he is the f- the Frenchman who was interviewed by the National Workers Federation Workers yeah. New Deal Money Economy words yeah word salad uh, SEO Taylor Swift <laughs> Taylor Swift right and so it's a bit it's a bit funny and it's and it's writing um, okay. but I'm just gonna go ahead and, and and give it a shot this is called the Lou Guru Cow as told by Pepe Boucher. Of course there'd be other... Oh, and before I start this, there's a character whose name is Vital, and he is mentioned familiar in a familiar way in this story because he showed up in another story that Pepe told. So, just gonna... Yeah, because I broke Adam's flow last time yeah. trying to find out who this guy is. So, was. I'll just throw that out there now. You, you, He was a Rougarou and was cured by a man named Paige. And now he hunts Rougarous. I don't think intentionally, but okay. he just sort of fall into that. Okay. You know, dad's gone missing. Let's go hunting. <laughs> Of course there be other Lugaru stories. We, oui, I must tell you many so you may know the Lugaru well. Most every other place they be just wolf dogs, but here in old Vincennes they be awful. Most any bete noir you hear about, you never want to think on a dark night when you be out by yourself that they be here, these Lugaru, and Vincennes. No, I tell you, little one, it not be so much scare you as you run home. That was a sentence. This happens here in Vincennes after General George R. Clark take the British fort from Lieutenant Gover- Governor? I said Governor last time, but no. I don't know military rankings either. Lieutenant Governor Hamilton. After that time, plenty of Americans came here to our town, and they laugh at us French and our Lugaru stories. They say it's impossible. Soon American, he say he lost his cow, and he go out to hunt for her every night. No one ever find him in his home at nights. At last, Fatel thought of his own miserable time, and he say to himself, go and hunt the man and deliver him as Paige did you. So Vitel gets a big knife and starts out in the dark and hunt for the American who he thinks is possessed. He hears a cow moaning, and remembering that the man said his cow be gone, Vitel now know it be the poor American who had always been laughing at the French when they talk of the Lugaru. Gathering up all his courage, Vitel crept softly, softly as an Indian, or on and on he slowly moved toward the spot from where the, the moaning came. The cow did not hear Vital. She was moaning like a person in great pain. The sound made Vital tremble. He reached out to cut the cow, so he drew blood and delivered the man. Just as he bent over the cow, she'd jump up. Right between Vital's legs, she'd jump and start on a cow jump, lope, gallop, or run out toward the commons. Now Vital, he not be so brave like Paige, so he f- be frightened most out of his wit. He reached for the cow's horns. The cow tossed her head and bellowed and tried to jump from under Vital. Poor Vital, he was dead scared and not have sense enough to stick his knife in the cow until they be run a mile from town. 
He holler and call loud, so boss, because he thought an American cow Luguru would not understand French. But the cow never stopped. So he cried out, Mon Dieu, arrestez Vash, Vash, arrestez. That did not enter the ear of the Luguru. So Vital at last recovered his spirits, became brave enough to stick his knife in the shoulder. And the blood began to spout out of the cow, and it fell over, and Vital fell over as well. And as they fell, he fell right into the grass in the common next to the side of the American who had always made fun of the French in their stories. So Vital and the American walk back into town, and the whole way Amer- the American tries to express his gratitude. He begs Vital not to tell anyone until he dies or moves away. And he moved back east pretty soon, and he never came back. When he was gone, Vital told, but many did not believe. But he said, it is whether you believe it or not. Okay. Just, just a fun little folklore story. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. This is one of those interesting bits of of information that mm-hmm. I sort of gleaned for myself as I was doing this research and we discussed it a bit the last time we recorded this episode but that I I think it's important to be able to study how folklore changes as people yeah become we talked about how hopefully podcasting can start to yeah we it, it would be nice if we thought it was nice that someone had taken the time to yeah. record this old man's stories mm-hmm. because Folklore is important. It, it, I'm learning a lot that it, you know, it reflects culture and and yeah. morals and ideas at the time, and sort of gives them a character. Or a well, maybe it's something we we muttered a long time about trying to do a second episode every week. Yeah, and maybe there's something in there because I think it's interesting this yeah. idea of can you know it would it'd be nice to you know sort of sit some old timers down yeah and, wouldn't it and have them tell us a story from when they were. Kids. There's like one around here called the Hairy Hand of Devon. Yeah. What or Hairy Hand of Dartmoor? Yes. Yeah. It smells a lot like cider. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're supposed to drive you off the road. <laughs> um, but it w- it would be fun to be able to get yeah. a couple of the old timers around here to record some stories and maybe hear some stories from other people. Yeah, because I, I obviously I don't think Rugurus actually exist um, because they don't. But it's you know they're it's cool. I like I like. Can I ask you a question? Is the only reason that Rugurus are scary because you don't want to become one? I guess so. Because there's no, like, there's no downs. I mean, like, unless you... Because he starts, like, the, you know, Rugurus are awful here. Well, they don't actually... I mean, the or, the guy just sounded like he turned into a cow every night. Yeah. I think if I think if you're unfortunate enough to be cursed as a wolf... Yeah. Maybe you could hurt someone and, like, but... I I didn't read all of this all of the transcriptions. But no, but there isn't like an overwhelming like werewolves like go out and they kill your cattle and they and they massacre people and they're like cognizant enough to spread yeah. their curse. Yeah, which is inter- which is no, that's really interesting. I think it is just like you don't want to not be human. But it's a bit again like the roaring calf thing. Mm-hmm. There was no actual like it was like you don't want to see the roaring calf. Here's he has why. fire and things, but, but not, not gonna... actually didn't. All you had to it just lay down in the middle of the road. I don't know. I really have no idea. That's an interesting question. I didn't even. I didn't pick up on it until you're reading that story yeah, for the second have time. I've never thought about that. That's really interesting. And it's it's like. What's the problem? <laughs> What's really the issue? Well, you'll be cursed for 101 days. That's not even a year. It's not great. Like, I'm not suggesting. Go out and get cursed by Go a witch. out and become a Rougarou. But I'm just saying that, like, in the grand scheme of things, they don't seem particularly dangerous. No. Or dangerous to you as a person who gets cursed. No. And they're not. Yeah. They're not even physiologically like werewolves. I'm more no. scared of a Wendigo than I am of a, yeah. of a Rougarou. That's what I mean. Like, if we take the supernatural Rougarou out of the equation, yeah. definitely Wendigos are scary. Oh, for sure. Huh. 
Sorry. What do you guys think? <laughs> tell us tell us what you think. Are you more scared of Wendigos or Rougarous? <laughs> tell us what the downside is to becoming a Rougarou because we don't know. Yeah, we we can't figure that one out. We think it sounds quite good. You have, you have to answer our questions for us this week. Yeah. Yeah, tell us about the French invaded <laughs> French settling in America. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, whether whether or not being a Rougarou is a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Um, I don't if you know any witches. Yeah, and I don't think there were any Nazi questions that we had left. No, the Nazis suck. That's generally that's pretty the much. Idea. There's no there's no real debate on that one. No. no. Um, all right, guys. So thank you so much for listening. Hopefully, this recorded well, and you are listening to it. Yes, and tell us that you liked it. Go yep. on, go on iTunes and give us the five stars and. Wherever you listen to podcasts. No, no one's done that since we started asking. Oh, well, stop asking then. There's no point in asking. No one does it. None of you go. None of you review. Well, if you're not going to review us, at least send us a nice DM. Yeah, that honestly, I I mean, you know. Numbers are good, but. Numbers are good, but. But, but knowing that you're actually out there and enjoying the, yeah. the content is really, it helps my brain. Helps, okay. Helps my heart. And maybe we'll do New Orleans next week. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, we could do something fun there. Wow, a topic. Set in stone. At we the end just of went from we just went from let's anything about an entire country to a state to picking a <laughs> not even a state. It's a city. Louisiana's a state. Yeah, New Orleans is a city. I thought you said Louisiana. I said New Orleans. Didn't hear that at all. And on that <laughs> bombshell, yeah, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.